This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot. And they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May. And again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates. And that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the US. My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, Listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorne.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Kagan Gill. 
Now, I met Kagan when he joined us in Dubai on the Human Performance Project 7X as we circumnavigated the entire globe in one week. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the world of aviation, joining the military, the crucible that is becoming a fighter pilot, his near-death experience after ejecting at the speed of sound, his physical rehabilitation journey, his extremely powerful mental health story, psychedelics, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Kagan... Gil. Enjoy. Well, Kagan, I want to start by thanking you for coming on. We are sitting in a hotel in the outskirts of Dallas, Texas. We have just been around the world in an airplane. You just finished your second marathon. So uh, we uh, we were going to kind of unwrap your entire story, but I don't know a huge amount about your story because we just met two days ago. So I'm super excited. So I just want to say thank you first for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm glad we were able to make this work. And, Absolutely. And we connected on this. So we are, for everyone listening, we are holding a microphone. So hopefully there's not going to be too much banging around. It's not the normal setup, but... That's what happens when your studio is in a, in a suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning of your story. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. So I was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, my mom was completing her medical residency for medical school. And uh, I don't remember a whole lot from Tulsa other than ticks and softball size hail. <laughs> uh, when I was three years old, we moved to Alamosa, Colorado. Uh, by the time I was five, I was bombing down black diamonds on my skis, you know, a little 30 pounds of inertia and fluffy white powder. Um, and I always kind of had a an attraction to extreme sports and, and doing fun stuff like that. Um, I then continued my childhood up in uh, northern Michigan. So my mom had completed a scholarship program through the National Health Service, which what is what brought us to Alamosa. To, she served in a rural community and basically got all of her medical school paid for by doing that. Uh, she became an obstetrician gynecologist. And uh, once she completed her uh, duties in Alamosa, we moved to Traverse City, Michigan, which is where I primarily grew up in northern Michigan. Um, there... Uh, Growing up, I kind of had a, uh, an unconventional childhood. Um, my parents were sort of out of the box. My dad's a very uh, outdoorsy kind of guy. I mean, he carves his own bows. He, 
you know, he'll patch his old clothes together. He refuses to ever buy anything. He's always been a, an endurance athlete. He's completed Ironman triathlons. He's done Pikes Peak Marathon. He used to run around pushing me in in a stroller doing triathlons. He ran one of his fastest triathlons when he got to push me on the run. Um, he used to load me up in a backpack and take me out into the mountains when we were in Colorado um, and went backcountry skiing. He was a big telemark skier. Um, so I kind of always had adventurous uh, parents and 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 uh, an unconventional upbringing. You know, we didn't we didn't have a lot of fancy stuff. We kind of had old beater vehicles, and uh, they they liked to spend their money on travel. And we got to explore the national parks and 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 do a lot of adventuring growing up. Um, when I was about twelve years old, my parents uh, had a friend that took me up flying in a little Cessna one fifty two. And I absolutely fell in love with, you know, being up above the world and flying like Peter Pan. So when I graduated high school, uh, there was a little flight program at the community college in Traverse City called Northwestern Michigan College. And I still kind of had a passion for flying and I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. But I remember that I really enjoyed that. So uh, I figured being a pilot was going to be a good balance of a professional career and adventure. And uh, the last thing I wanted to be was, you know, trapped in an office filling out worksheets uh, under fluorescent lighting. So uh, I ended up going there. I became a, a certified flight instructor while I was in college, completing my bachelor's degree. Uh, I became an aerobatics instructor primarily because I was the smallest flight instructor. And we only had this little Cessna aerobat as our aerobatics aircraft. So they could fit me in there with my parachute uh, and, and, uh, and a full-size grown-up <laughs> and get up and fly around in this thing. But, uh, Did it the full-size up... grown-up have a parachute as well? Yeah, yeah. Okay. We, that would we be had unnerving to... if you were the passenger and only the, the pilot had a parachute. <laughs> yeah, we had to wear these little parachutes. I never had to use it, but... Uh, in case of an emergency, there were these little poles on the doors of the aerobat. You pop the door open and you can jump out. Uh, fortunately, I never had to do that. But uh, it was a good gig. Uh, once I graduated college with my bachelor's degree, I, um, I got hired by Poneman Institute, which is a privacy research uh, and think tank out of northern Michigan. And I became their company pilot, essentially. And I flew all over the world or all over the country um, with them, which was a great experience. I got a lot of single pilot experience flying the aircraft um, and instructing the owner uh, on occasion uh, as he rode with me on a lot of the flights. I had a great experience with them, but kind of still had an itch to do something more. Um, and my friend was applying to go to Navy OCS for a pilot slot, my friend Mark. And at the time, I, I, I thought you had to you know, go to the Naval Academy and your dad had to be an admiral to to uh, to do that but he he filled me in and said no you can apply to OCS you have flight experience you have a bachelor's degree you're fully qualified to do that so uh, I did a bunch of research on a website called Air Warriors which is an online forum that I highly recommend for anybody who's interested in getting into the world of military aviation and I learned uh, about what tests I needed to take how to prepare and I, I took the test to get in. I did well on the test after studying. Uh, and with my background in aviation already, uh, it made for a pretty strong package. And I got picked up for a pilot slot for the Navy. Now, how many people that apply have the kind of flight experience that you do already? Because the Navy must have been loving the fact that you had that resume. Yeah, you, you don't have to have any flight experience to apply. 
it it definitely helped it definitely helped uh but it was completely unnecessary i probably had more flight experience than most going in which uh was good in some ways but also a disadvantage is i had to relearn to do everything the navy way um but it, it certainly helped with the application process for sure um i went to navy ocs out of newport rhode island uh, graduated through there and then headed down to Pensacola, Florida, where I went to aviation pre-flight indoctrination, uh, which was basically a month of ground school as well as some survival training. We got to do things like swim a mile in our flight suits uh, and then do the helo dunker where they flip you upside down in this body of a helicopter in a pool and unclip yourself and escape blindfolded, uh, which was a good time. Uh, once I finished there... Um, I headed to Corpus Christi, Texas, where I completed primary flight training and the T-34 Charlie, the Turbo Mentor, which is a pretty high-performance single-engine prop plane with a turbine engine on it, fully aerobatic. And uh, it was actually pretty surprising to see that that's the first aircraft the Navy uses for training because it's a pretty pretty powerful aircraft. But um, that's the way naval training works. They cram a lot into a very condensed syllabus and, and, and get the most out of the time and money that they put into it. Um, my flight, my previous flight experience definitely helped with the flying part of that. Um, I already had the, the stick and rudder skills uh, to help me excel and graduate towards the top of my class, and I was able to select jets coming out of that. Uh, I then headed to Kingsville, Texas, Uh, with VT-22, and I was trained in the T-45 Charlie Goshawk, which is a a single-engine jet. And I did my intermediate training, and once I completed intermediate training, I went to uh, an interview process, and that's where you can either select uh, the F-18 route or you can select uh, the E-2C2 route, which is a carrier-based airborne uh, radar system aircraft it's got like a huge disc on the top big prop plane and then the c2 is basically the cod they do the uh they basically are like the mailman and they deliver people and and everything onto the aircraft carrier um my my i wanted the f-18 slot and and went to the interview process and it went well and i got selected for the f-18 uh training program uh, then I headed to VFA 106, which is in Virginia Beach, Virginia, at NAS Oceana. And I spent a year completing the F-18 training program there, which was extremely intense. Uh, you know, it, it, it's not as uh, physically demanding as, as what the special operations guys go through, but it's certainly it's the, uh, the mental version of that uh, as far as... Um, having to perform at a very high level, absorb a massive amount of information. It's kind of the, the expression is trying to drink out of a fire hose. Mm-hmm. Just There's so much that comes at you and so much you have to learn just to get the baseline of information and then being able to actually perform in the jet. Everything is graded. The standards are extremely high and uh, it was it was intense, but made it through that training. Uh, initially did the transition sil- syllabus where you learn the aircraft systems, emergency procedures, uh, a lot of the basic flight ops navigation of the aircraft. And you quickly get into operating the radar system, doing intercepts with the radar uh, on other aircraft. And then you do the strike fil- uh, syllabus, which is where you uh, learn how to 
basically use the aircraft to drop bombs in a different bunch of different scenarios, including close air support. Uh, completed that and then moved to the air-to-air syllabus uh, or the fighter syllabus. The, the F-18 is sort of the, the jack of all trades, master of none. So we have to be able to do a wide variety of roles in the aircraft, which always keeps it interesting, but you never feel like you know what the hell you're doing <laughs> because of the fire it. service. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I did the fighter syllabus learning uh, air combat maneuvering or BFM, which is uh, fighting the jet in the visual arena all the way out to uh, long range air to air intercepts and tactics, which gets extremely complex and difficult. And then the last part of the syllabus, you do carrier qualifications, which is basically the most difficult thing you can do in an aircraft is try to land on the back of a moving aircraft carrier in the dark in bad weather. Um, actually my first time out to the aircraft carrier, I disqualified at the boat, which is, um, semi-common for that phase just because it's so demanding um but i was fortunate to get a second chance and i went back and my second time i qualified and i graduated vfa 106 and was picked up by vfa 143 the puking dogs out of virginia beach it's a good name yeah (laughs) yeah there's actually there was a lot of controversy behind their name uh and, and i think back in the 90s they had to switch it uh, they were originally the Griffins back in the 1950s when the squadron was established. Um, there was a, a party at the officers club uh, at, at one point and somebody had made a paper mache statue of the Griffin, this winged lion that was the, the mascot of the squadron. And one of the, you know, everybody's drinking, having a good time. And one of the wives uh, of one of the pilots was from uh, New Orleans. She had a real thick accent. She said, well, that looks like a puking dog. And everybody cracked up and thought it was the perfect name, and it stuck with the squadron <laughs> until the political correct police came in and, and made them switch it back for a while. But Because but the, the dogs with nausea were offended? or I guess, I guess <laughs> yeah, they were they were offended. And, and uh, But fortunately now it's, again, the puking dogs, despite all the political correct nonsense that's going on in the world these days. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was there for about eight months. Uh, I wasn't the new guy anymore. There were maybe four or five newer guys in the squadron. I was finally starting to feel like I was getting the swing of things. And, uh, on January 15th, 2014, uh, I was heading out on a, uh, a flight to do some air to air refueling. And then on the backside of that with extra fuel and a little bit of time, I was going to go do uh, BFM, basic fighter maneuvering, which despite having the word basic in it, there's not much basic about it. It's, uh, you know, dogfighting. It's very dynamic. Uh, some people describe it as uh, a knife fight in a phone booth. So you're you're within visual range of another jet and you're trying to shoot each other down. Uh, in this case, for training, um, it's a very perishable skill. So anytime we get the chance to practice it, we, we go out and practice. Um, a lot of the training that's done in the F-18 is... is uh, is intense. We, you know, we train harder than hopefully we ever have to do in real life. Uh, and that's certainly the case with the, with BFM, you know, it's, it's dynamic, but it was, it was my favorite thing to do in the jet. You know, I'm, I'm a fairly short guy at the time. I was pretty, uh, pretty stocky build. So I did well with the G's and, and I, it was just the most exciting thing, ripping around the jet, pulling G's, uh, trying to shoot the other guy down. You're operating weapon systems, defensive systems, uh, radar. It's kind of like playing chess, jazz piano, 
being in a wrestling match and and, uh, and driving in heavy traffic with screaming kids in the back of your car talking on the phone. So there's a lot going on, um, but it's it's a good time. Uh, anyways, getting ready for the flight. Um, my buddy Fisty, uh, who joined the squadron about the same time as I, was standing duty officer that day, which means he's the pilots take turns rotating through that uh, position each day. And you basically answer the phone, the radio, coordinate the flight schedule. Uh, and anyways, as a joke, we're, we're always doing stuff to keep things light because it's a pretty high stress job and, and, and you can easily let that overwhelm you if you don't laugh at it. Uh, and Tom uh, Fisty is an expert at keeping things light and making it funny. He's kind of like Chris Pratt and Chris Farley all in one guy, just awesome human being. And, and anyways, he uh, on the whiteboard behind the SDO desk, he had put up uh, basically a big picture of the working area, the airspace that we were going to utilize that day over the Atlantic Ocean. And for fun, below it, he had uh, marked all the locations of these GPS-tagged sharks off of the Shark Tracker app. Uh, and just so happened that that day, there was a 16-foot, 3,500-pound white shark named Mary Lee directly underneath the area I was going to go out to. And Tom joked, uh, hey, it'd be a bad day to eject because there's this freaking <laughs> white shark right under you. Uh, at the time, I, I had had the uh, small mouth, big ears was my primary uh, tactic going into a fighter squadron as a new guy. So I'd been, you know, kept my head down. I hadn't stuck out really. And, and it, because of that, I didn't earn a call sign yet. Uh, you normally get a call sign because of something stupid you do or, or something that is embarrassing. And right before the flight, uh, another one of the more senior junior officers in the squadron, another pilot, Basil, had come up to me and he said, hey, you know, you just haven't done anything stupid enough to earn a call sign yet. They had another whiteboard in the squadron and, and all the new guys on it. And and most of the other new guys had, uh, you know, already earned a call sign or had a whole laundry list of call signs for potential uh our potential call signs. Give me some examples, because in Top Gun, everyone's just got a very complimentary oh. name, Maverick, oh, yeah. Iceman. So what are, what are call that's, signs that's actually? That's not how it works. So, <laughs> so uh, well, Basil, so <laughs> he's going to hate me for telling this story. <laughs> but uh, he, he uh, his was uh, Basil, which was an acronym for Bang's a sister-in-law, because he had allegedly... <laughs> Had sexual relationships with his sister-in-law, which is probably not true at all, but it stuck it's anyway. Stuck. Yeah. Uh, and then Fisty, he had earned his because uh, he had gone out on a, a flight one day. A jet had just come out of maintenance and they needed somebody to just go fly the jet around and make sure everything was good on it. And uh, he basically just got to go out for a joyride in the F-18. We have a moving map in the jet and it depicts some of the airspace and things on it, but Unfortunately, those are oftentimes out of date and don't include all the restricted areas and things in them. Like the old garments that you had to update every time. And, and <laughs> so he went out on a flight and uh, he was just having a good time flying right, right where he thought was no issue. And he ended up accidentally flying through a restricted area. And there were a bunch of Marines that were live firing a Stinger missile, which is uh, like a heat-seeking uh, shoulder-mounted missile system intended to shoot down aircraft. 
and they had test fired it like within seconds of him flying through this restricted area. So he got fisty because it was flew into stinger territory. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he almost got shot down by friendly Marines by accident. Uh, so he earned that one and uh, and a trip to the to the base skipper. <laughs> I love that. In the fire <laughs> service, there's some of the best names. I'll just to give you one quickly. We had a guy, one of the nicest, most chill yeah, fire captains I ever worked on. His name was Joel. But, and we've just been exposed to acute sleep de- deprivation, so you'll understand this. At nighttime, when we got the calls, he turned, he was just always super, super angry. So they called him Bijola. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah, so it's it's normally something embarrassing or something you hate or something goofy about you. But it's not normally uh, very flattering. Uh, anyways, uh, I got ready for the flight. Uh the buoy temperature that of the water that day in January, we had had a really cold winter and the water temperature that I was going to be operating over was 37 degrees Fahrenheit. So, uh, after the brief got on my dry suit along with the G suit and all the other normal gear we wear and walked out to the jet. I had just gotten qualified with my Jehemix helmet, which is uh, a joint helmet mounted queuing system. It's this big bulgy visor, but wherever you turn your head, the the weapon systems in your display uh, will all come with you and all your flight information. A very cool system, but I was still kind of getting used to this new piece of gear, which became a factor in the flight uh, that I'll get into. Uh, anyways, took off uh, with my flight lead and we got out to the working area and did some air to air refueling. Uh, another junior officer buddy, uh, call sign hipster, was, uh, was flying the tanker jet that day. This Air, ARS uh, refueling pod, aerial refueling system, had just come out of maintenance, so they needed us to test and make sure that it was working properly. So I got a few practice plugs of air-to-air refueling. Uh, you basically extend a little probe out of the nose of the jet, fly behind a basket, and, and get fuel. And, and that all went great, and so we had extra time and, uh, and, and airspace. So me and my flight lead headed out, and we, uh, we set up for some BFM which was awesome. We did uh, like four or five rounds of it, which is kind of like a round of uh, martial arts or wrestling or whatever. You kind of fight until somebody has a clear clear win and you knock it off and you reset. And uh, being that I was fighting my commanding officer that day, someone who had been a, a Top Gun graduate, you know, a master of the craft who'd been doing it for 15 plus years, you know, he, it was like stepping in the ring with Mike Tyson and he kicked my ass, but that's that's how you learn to do that is, is you get in over your head in the Navy and, and you figure it out. Uh, anyways, we had done several iterations and we were on our last set of the day. Uh, we had hit Joker fuel, which means we were almost to, out of fuel for the day and we were kind of heading back towards Oceana. Uh, we set up for one last set a little bit lower and a little bit faster than we normally would. Uh, no big deal though. He called the fights on. And we pitched in off of what's called the beam set. Uh, I pitched the jet towards him. We were kind of in a dive towards each other. Um, and as we merged, I had, was partially inverted. I was getting used to this Jehemix helmet. And there's a bunch of HOTAS, which is like the, the controls you use on the stick and throttle to operate that system. I was focused on that and trying to use the radar and, and get used to that. And it distracted me just for a moment. I didn't realize how fast I had gotten at that merge 
And I was already about 30 degrees nose low and partially inverted. I opted to roll the jet fully inverted and pull the jet down towards the ocean in what's called a split S maneuver, uh, which is basically a big loop down towards the ocean and, and then come back up was my plan. Uh, I would have been okay, but as I hit bullseye nose low, so pointed straight down at the ocean, the aircraft hit uh, transonic Mach, which is right before you break the speed of sound. And at that speed, it enacted this uh, feature of the F-18 called uh, the G-bucket. It, uh, it Basically, the aircraft thought there were bombs on the wings that weren't actually there. And because of that, at that transonic region, parasitic drag, so the, the force of the air acting on the aircraft when you're pulling Gs gets really extreme at that point. It's actually, once you break the sound barrier, that force actually decreases a little bit. But that's back uh, back when they were trying to initially break the sound barrier, all the engineers thought, you can't get through that, that drag because it's like a wall, the sound barrier. You can't break through that. Which, of course, the pilots were like, well, watch us. We're going <laughs> to break through beard. it anyways. <laughs> uh, but that's basically where I was at with the aircraft. And because of hitting that speed, the aircraft reduced the G available to me on the jet. So I went from a seven and a half G pull, which, you know, you can feel on your body. The Jehemix helmet and my head together weighed approximately 20 pounds. So at almost eight times that, it's like having a 150 pound person on your head. And you can feel that through your body, but especially in your head, trying to look around and, and keep sight of the other aircraft. And so all of a sudden, I, you know, I had the stick in my lap. I'm, blasting through the sky and all of a sudden I just felt that force lift off down to about four and a half G's and you know this all just happens in a few seconds and before I know it I'm just stuck in a dive at the ocean and uh, you know I'm pulling the stick all the way in my lap but it was like going around a sharp corner in a sports car and then having the steering wheel kick back halfway but instead of skidding off the side of the road I was now stuck diving at the ocean so what would have been a, a, an acute curve became a lot longer curve, so you exactly. never would have made that turn. It drastically increased the turn radius of the jet. Uh, and, and, you know, the aircraft was trying to protect itself from a minor overstress potentially, but the result of it outsmarting me was it put us in a catastrophic situation, which in part was my fault for maneuvering the jet so aggressively. But uh, this G-bucket has, you know, caused mishaps near mishaps and killed people prior to me and and unfortunately it is i know at least one guy who has died because of it after my ejection but uh to get into what happened after that uh, i'm diving at the ocean and i can sense the ground rush of the ocean coming up at me rapidly and there was no other option at that point um, to where I'd gotten, I'd pulled the throttle to idle. I'd put out a speed break, but it was too little, too late. In the few seconds, I had to figure out what was going on. And I was at 51 degrees nose low, going 695 miles per hour, which is 0.95 indicated Mach at 2,000 feet above the ocean. Uh, so essentially at the speed of sound. And two seconds before impacting the ocean, I pulled the ejection handle. And a normal ejection is, is pretty violent. It compresses your spine. Uh, you're sitting on a, a rocket on the seat, 
And when that rocket ignites, you get an instantaneous 50 Gs of force, which uh, will permanently compress your spine. And that eases up into uh, about 12 to 14 sustained Gs, which is still a very high G load to get you out of the aircraft in less than half a second. When I pulled the ejection handle, I was two seconds from impacting the water. By the time the ejection seat cleared the aircraft, uh, I was about a second and a half from impacting the water. And hitting the airflow at that speed was like hitting the force of an explosion. Um, if you've ever stuck your arm out a car window going about 70 miles per hour down the highway, you, you felt about one one hundredth of the force that was acting on me at almost 700 miles per hour. That that parasitic drag force is exponentially stronger with airspeed. So, um, you know, it was so powerful, just the force of the air. It, it, it had ripped my helmet off my head. It smashed my head, giving me a brain injury. Uh, it had just pummeled my face. I mean, my face looked like I had just lost in a 15 rounds of boxing. It was all black and blue. My eyes were swollen. Uh, I broke my neck. I broke my left scapula, my shoulder, broke both my upper arms. My right humerus and my right arm tore through my brachial artery, causing internal bleeding. My left forearm shattered in multiple places, destroying the radius and ulna. Um, I severed my median nerve. I had a brachial plexus injury, which is the nerve that innovates most of your upper body uh, coming out of your C5 and your spine. Uh, both my lower legs were flailing so violently with steel-toed boots on them. The steel-toed boots essentially became like a mace and smashed my lower legs open. So I had uh, both my lower tibia, tibia, tibia and fibulas were shattered open. Chunks of my bone were falling out uh, with open fractures more nerve damage to my legs. And uh, I had ejected so fast that it had shredded majority of the survival gear off of my vest. And it had also ripped open my dry suit. And miraculously, the parachute opened enough to slow me so that I didn't die on impact in that second and a half that I had to slow. Uh, and landed in the open Atlantic Ocean at 37 degrees Fahrenheit. And if you've ever felt that kind of cold water, if you're into cold plunges, you know that it's like needles on your skin. If you put your head under it, it feels like brain freeze. Um, quickly, my dry suit filled up with the ice water and the parachute that just saved my life was pulled under by the ocean currents and started to drag me underneath. We have a system on our harness called the SeaWars, which is a saltwater activated explosive device. And what that does is when it detects saltwater, it's supposed to set off a little explosive that disconnects your parachute from you automatically. Because uh, in high-speed jet ejections, it's so common for you to have arm injuries, flail injuries, that you can't reach up and disconnect manually. Uh, you know, Unfortunately, a lot of our gear is pretty antiquated. One of, uh, one of the sewers fired but didn't disconnect and the other one didn't even fire off at all. So I was trapped to my parachute with no ability to disconnect or swim. Um, fortunately, my LPU, my life preserver unit, automatically inflated around my neck, giving me a little bit of buoyancy. Uh, but I spent the next hour and a half uh, being drugged under the ocean by that parachute. And if you've ever been held under by a big wave, when you need a breath of air, you know that feeling of dread and, and how awful it is. Uh, I was inhaling a lot of salt water. Um, I was in and out of consciousness. I coughed up. I'd get up, get a little bit of float up to the surface, get a quick breath of air, cough out what water I had, and then I would immediately drug back under. And I was completely helpless at the mercy of the ocean. 
Um, fortunately, my uh, my flight lead, my skipper saw my parachute open, and he was able to drop a mark on my location, a GPS position. He uh, dialed up maritime guard when he spotted a, a fishing vessel that was about a mile from my position and tried to get their attention. They weren't initially answering, so he got down really low and really fast. And, and at this point, he's essentially on fumes at bingo fuel and buzzed over the bow of their uh, boat, getting their attention by doing what's called thumping them. You know, a fighter jet flying over your bow real close, real fast. They quickly realized something was going on. They switched up and were able to get in communication with him on maritime guard. Uh, they eventually got over to my position and were able to throw out a, uh, a rope. I was unable to grab it uh, and it ended up getting tangled in lines and around my neck, which uh, was fortunate that they ended up not pulling me onto the ship, onto their boat, uh, as that trauma of just getting me out of the water would have likely killed me at that point. Um, what, with what fuel my skipper had left, he was able to coordinate as the on-scene commander with air traffic control, get out of the aircraft, and they had two helicopters coming my position as well as a Coast Guard vessel. Um, the first helicopter that arrived had been operating off a nearby aircraft carrier. They had been instructed to take me out of the water and bring me back to the aircraft carrier, not realizing the extent of my injuries. Their rescue swimmer dove in and he thought I was on the fishing vessel still, uh, which I wasn't. Uh, but at least the fishing vessel gave a rough location because I was just a little dark head bobbing around out in the open ocean and getting drug under. Uh, so that the fishing vessel was at least a rough location of where I was at. Um, another thing that had malfunctioned was the beacon. So there was no beacon, but again, my skipper's quick thinking, getting that fishing vessel over, at least got my rough location for people. But the first helicopter thought I was on the boat, jumped in, swam right by me and uh, didn't find me, which ended up again being a wild twist of fate because had they gotten me, and brought me back to the aircraft carrier, I would have died on the aircraft carrier because they didn't have the the ability to save me, how bad I was. And uh, the other rescue helicopter was actually, uh, their guys from HSC-28, which is a, a Navy uh, squadron out of Norfolk. They were gearing up to go do a, a weapons exercise with some of the SEAL teams uh, and had gotten the call. And so they quickly switched their mission the rescue swimmer that was with them, uh, call sign Cheech, the week prior there had been a Navy H-53 Sea Dragon, one of these big heavy lift helicopters, uh, had a fire and had to ditch in the ocean nearby right where I was at that day, um, the week prior. And at the time, the Navy policy was anybody who's involved in an aircraft accident in the water has to be put on a backboard to be lifted into the aircraft. Um, and because of that, it took them a long time to get everybody that had survived the crash onto the backboard and into the helicopter. And unfortunately, several of the people that day perished because of hypothermia. Um, Cheech recognized that. He was coming off the worst week of his career, essentially, after witnessing all these people die, you know, and he didn't get any time off. He was back at it. And he showed up to my rescue and in the back of his mind was, you know, this dude is going to be hypothermic and I don't care about the backboard. If he has a back injury, that's unfortunate, which I did. But he's like, if, if, if we take all this time to put him on a backboard, he's going to die from hypothermia. So screw it. Um, the, the pilot of their helicopter was the first one to actually spot my location in all the chaos of this rescue effort. 
Um, they spotted me and got over to my position. Cheech jumped in and he said he got down to me and he was able to clip into my titanium D-ring on my harness. And he said, as soon as he clipped in that parachute pulled both of us underwater and he had done training in, in the pools and been pulled under. And he said, you know, in the pool, you see the bottom of the pool. But when we got drug under by that parachute that day, he said it was just this dark blue abyss and tangled paracord and parachute below us. He said it was, you know, pretty, pretty incredible to see, pretty scary, you know, but his training kicked in. He was able to get down and disconnect uh, with his knife to cut me loose of all the paracord and quickly got me riding up the line to the helicopter you know we were going up the line just spinning around like crazy getting blasted with prop wash from the h60s uh helicopter got me into the helicopter uh one of the other crew members uh had started to eat his lunch right before they had gotten the call and so he had this meatball sandwich and then when they got the call he had to kind of like toss it back and what he had left of these shreds of the wrapper and threw it in the corner of the helicopter and by the time I had gotten up there, his meatball sub had kind of rolled all over the floor of the helicopter. And so they, they kind of had me in it and, and I was covered in like marinara sauce and meatballs. And, uh, you know, on the ride to the, to Norfolk general, uh, it was only like a 40 ish minute ride, 45 minute ride, but they said it seemed like it lasted five hours because the whole time I was in and out of consciousness, you know, so near death. They, they kept trying to resuscitate me, doing sternum rubs, everything they could to get me to come back. Um, by the time we got to Norfolk General, I was just covered in meatballs and marinara sauce, so it looked like a bloody mess. So as the, the hospital staff came out, uh, they had to explain to him, hey, this is all meat. He's in bad shape, but that's all just meatballs. <laughs> <laughs> His wounds taste, taste uh, delicious. But, you know, at this point, I'm I'm really out of it. I'm, like, sitting up occasionally, screaming for help still, just completely out of it. Uh, they wheeled me in and got me into treatment. Uh, they took my core body temperature, and my core body temperature was at 87 degrees Fahrenheit. So I should have been dead from hypothermia, but they said had I not had this severe hypothermia, I would have bled to death way before anybody got there. So it was, again, another miraculous twist in it. Um, they treated me for hypothermia. Uh, I had kidney failure. Just my body was so overwhelmed processing all the the, the damage to my muscles. Um, I had to have blood transfusions. Uh, once they got me semi-stable, they induced a coma and rushed me into surgery. And I spent the next week undergoing over a dozen surgeries. Um, they rebuilt my skeleton with uh, uh, these they call them a titanium nail, which is a rod that they put inside the bone. Uh, they hold in place with screws. So I had titanium rods in both my upper arms, a big steel plate with a bunch of screws in my left forearm. Both my tibia uh, were rebuilt with these titanium uh, rods or nails, as the surgeon called them, intermedial uh, rods, I think they call them, something like that. Uh, they treated uh, me for compartment syndrome. Because of all the damage to the extremities, uh, the muscles were just so swollen, it cuts off the circulation. And, and just a few decades ago, that would have resulted in me being a quadriplegic. Uh, best case scenario, they would have just cut off all my extremities to save them. Uh, fortunately, they had the surgical dream team on that day at Norfolk General. And they were able to do limb salvages on all four of my, uh, my limbs uh, with fasciotomies uh, and save the limbs. 
But uh, by doing that, they had to open up these huge, uh, huge incisions on my arms and legs. Um, after a week of that, you know, I had a, now I look, my skeleton looks like freaking Wolverine uh, and a bunch of scars from all the surgeries. Um, they had to do a brachial artery bypass. They, they nearly amputated my right hand because of the artery while it was so damaged. Did they put a tourniquet on? Were they aware of that or was it hidden? I'm not sure if they put a tourniquet or not. I think it, I think they didn't initially recognize that because it was internal. Yeah. But uh, when they saw that the circulation was so bad, where they almost amputated, luckily, again, they called in this, uh, this vascular surgeon that was able to fix it last second but i was very close to losing that limb even despite the fasciotomies um after that week of surgeries uh you know at this point my family and squadron mates are are, are at the er just wondering if i'm gonna live they were trying to get me out of the coma at that point but i spent another week in a non-induced coma where it was just kind of up in the air what was going to happen to me um everybody in my squadron a bunch of the guys in my squadron were all sitting around waiting to hear you know, some good news. And, uh, Basil said, uh, you know, he's a scrappy motherfucker. He'll be fine. And so that became my call sign Smurf. Uh, they had to condense it down into a makeshift acronym with the politically correct call sign that I'm Smurf because I'm a short guy that turned blue from hypothermia. <laughs> but, uh, but the real reasons, uh, they called me a scrappy motherfucker. Um, my friends in college, I was a kiteboard instructor and they always called me scrappy. And my friend Matt, I had put on, when something bad happens, uh, when you join a squadron, you fill out a, this piece of paperwork and you put people that you want to have contacted if something bad were to happen. And my friend Matt, who ran uh, Bronia Kiteboarding, uh, was a good friend of mine. And, and so I had put his name on that letter that I thought nobody would ever have to use. So my skipper, when everything happened, had called him and told him what was going on. And he's like, Scrappy? Are you talking about Scrappy? So that's how the squadron got word of my old nickname, Scrappy, and then it turned into Scrappy Motherfucker. Uh, but anyways, they were waiting for me to come too. And after two weeks, uh, slowly the lights started coming back on. Uh, I remember everything was dark initially, but I could hear familiar voices. And when I came to, it was like waking up out of a dream. I had no idea how I'd gotten there. Uh, I recognized everybody, but I was really out of it between the trauma and the brain injury and, and, and the drugs they had me loaded up on. Um, I remembered the the blanket over me. It was just this little thin wool blanket. I thought it was made out of lead or something, and I couldn't budge it, but it was because I was paralyzed. Um, all my extremities were vacuum sealed in this plastic wrap to prevent in infection. I had uh, nearly 200 sutures and staples in all of my uh, open fasciotomy wounds. I looked like Frankenstein, you know, <laughs> with all the, all the scar or all the incisions. And uh, once, you know, all my family had come in and given me hugs and, and, and been so, they were so happy to see me that the medical staff came in and were, were kind of like, hey, you're, just to give you realistic expectations, you're, you're, pro you're never going to walk again you're not going to use your arms again and, and your flying career is over. And in the back of my mind, I was just kind of like, I'm going to prove you wrong, you know? And that became my driving force is I'm going to get back and fly. And, uh, after a couple of weeks in the ICU, I was eventually transferred down to Richmond, Virginia's poly trauma center, uh, at the VA hospital there in Richmond, Virginia. 
uh, and every day, most every just became uh, doing therapy of every kind. Uh, I had to do vision therapy, speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, kinesiotherapy, aqua therapy, recreational therapy, all this stuff all day, every day. And for a long while, you know, I, I, I could barely move. I couldn't use my arms. I couldn't use my legs. But little by little, keeping at it, things started to turn back on. Um, you know, the staff at the hospital there, the VA hospital was really incredible. Everybody that worked on that floor was there because they were passionate and really wanted to be there and help. Um, there were certainly some shortcomings of the VA hospital. The, the biggest one I would say is the nutrition aspect. You know, they have all this equipment. They have this, this sort of facade of the facility being very nice because it had just been renovated. Every room had these big screen TVs in it, fresh paint, nice art, uh, and all this equipment. But the most foundational piece of your healing is the nutrition that you take in. And unfortunately, the food that they were giving us, uh, for example, my favorite one I jokingly call the holiday feast, which was um, kind of like a Thanksgiving dinner. But it was the, the turkey was this sliced slimy deli meat that looked like it was near rancid that had come off the half off rack at the deli. Uh, the mashed potatoes were clearly from a box as there were still like dried chunks of powdery stuff in them. On top was this can shaped gelatinous brown uh, disc of what was supposed to be the gravy, but it looked like it had just come out of a can of dog food. And then on the side was a white generic jelly packet that just said cranberry. And you open it up and it was basically purple jello made out of high fructose corn syrup and artificial color. <laughs> so, you know, your body wasn't getting decent nutrition. And I saw a lot of guys there not make progress despite all the therapy and everything. I was fortunate that I had friends and family start to bring me food from the outside. So I actually got some nutrition. Um, but you know, they're, they're driving this food because it was probably the lowest bidder for the contract. They're, they're, they're making this stuff all the way out in Hampton roads, like an hour and a half away, putting it into metal boxes and then driving it to Richmond, Virginia. So by the time it gets to you, it's well, one, it's already very, nutrient lacking food but it's been reheated stuck in a hot box and it's like so it's like airplane food garbage bad airplane food bad airplane food yeah yeah actually our airplane food on this trip was way better <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't great so that's no. a lot <laughs> uh but uh, after three months uh i had regained the ability to get around on a walker and i was released into outpatient therapy i moved back to virginia beach and continued therapy um, I had several more surgeries and I had at that point been put on a massive amount of pain, pain medications. I was on an over a dozen medications plus all the medications, the counter effect, the side effects of those medications. And, uh, you know, I was in a pretty bad spot, but the guys in my squadron, my buddy Fisty from the squadron, my buddy Vinny, uh, and guys from the squadron and the strike fighter community kind of kept me at it that, you know, they were taking me out, taking me out to Chick's Oyster Bar, going out and having drinks. We, they had me out, uh, wake surfing and they got me out doing things again. Otherwise I would have probably, 
you know, just been down in oxycodone and whiskey and melted into a chair for the rest of my life. But well, just uh, to interject for a second, you're told that you'll never walk again and use your arms, etc. Now you're talking about wake surfing. So yeah. walk me through before we get past that. The journey from that incredibly inspiring speech you got for the medical stuff to <laughs> to how you were able to stand up behind a boat. Yeah, I mean, I, I just little by little I had kept pushing myself, uh, especially getting out wake surfing. You know, I could barely walk onto the boat, but they got me back behind the boat and and, and I got standing up on the surfboard and and it was just like all these little things were reinvigorating my soul and getting me back at it. And it was very slow. Um, a few of my buddies took me down to the outer banks. Uh, I could barely put on my wetsuit cause my arms were still so weak. And we went out into this pretty heavy, like 10 to 12 foot swell. And I just got annihilated by these waves, but I popped back up and I had a smile on my face and it was just, it was that sort of thing that really kept me going. My friends, uh, my buddy, uh, Aaron call sign Spicoli, he, he took me uh, to Bryce, which is a, a downhill mountain bike park a few hours from Virginia Beach and took me out downhill mountain biking. I had done some trail riding before, but I'd never done the downhill stuff. But, you know, I had all the armor and everything on and a full face helmet. And I'm out there. My, my left hand was so weak at this point, I could barely still use the, the front brake. And, but I miraculously made it down, you know, without dying. <laughs> now, what about the war? Uh, Just to go back for a second, you had a pretty traumatic event in the ocean. Was there a mental kind of journey getting back into the ocean to, or back into the water to get behind the boat? You know, I, I thought that there might be problems being held under by that wave, but I was, it did the opposite. It wasn't terror. It was like, it reinvigorated me and it made me excited to get back on the horse and face those demons. And, and, uh, yeah, when we initially were going down there, I was like, I don't know how this is going to go being, if I get held under by a wave, but then it happened and it was like, Oh, I'm fine. I can survive that. I survived all that other craziness. This is nothing now. Uh, so it really, it really helped inspire me a lot, actually refacing those fears. Um, after two years uh, of pretty intense rehabilitation, my actually one of the guys in my squadron, Smuggler, his wife, Amanda, was a physical therapist. She took me under her wing uh, outside of the clinical setting. Uh, and the first day she showed up with a, a Nalgene bottle and on the side of it, it said, patient's tears. Uh, so she had a, you know this dark sense of humor and she proceeded to kick my ass. Uh, when I first started working with her, I was still walking on a cane and uh, she kind of snatched it away from me and I tossed it. It was like, I never want to see you use that again. But uh, she proceeded to kick my ass, you know, in more of like a CrossFit style workout and um, really intense training, which I really liked because I was into that kind of stuff before. And so despite, you know, having a fraction of the ability that I did before, it helped uh, just trying to do it. Um after two years, uh, I had gone through a FENAB, which is a Field Naval Aviator Evaluation Board. I had crashed uh, in 2014 dollars. It would have been $89 million jet. Uh, adjusted for inflation today, that's about $106 million. And so there was uh, you know, a lot of questions to be answered about that. And I went through a full investigation. Uh, at the end of the investigation, uh, I eventually went in to see an admiral 
uh, and had to get in my dress whites and stand at the end of this big, long wooden table with aviators on either side of it. Um, and I had explained my side of what had happened. And, you know, I largely took fault for what had happened. Um, I had made a mistake. I had overly aggressively maneuvered this aircraft and, and largely took it upon myself for what happened. Uh, and the Admiral walked in and everybody rose at the table as he sat and told us all to sit down. And he looked across the table at me. And the only question he asked me is, he said, Lieutenant Gill, are you fearless? And I kind of thought for a moment and, and responded. And I don't know if it was what came over me, but the answer that came out is, uh, I don't remember some of the things from the ejection, but I'm certain what little cushion there is on an ejection seat was puckered up inside me real good. <laughs> And he didn't smile. He just stood up and left the room. And uh, I was thinking, oh, God, that didn't go very well. <laughs> but uh, eventually, another one of the, the higher-ranking officers there pulled me into his room and sat me down. And he handed me a lifesaver, a little mint. And I put it in my mouth, and he put one in his mouth. And he said, congratulations, you're going to go back and fly. And shook my hand. So, um I'd gotten the opportunity to go back to fly, assuming I could physically get better. And at this point, I was still pretty bad shape physically, uh, but it gave me a huge amount of motivation. Uh, and after two years, after struggling with prescription drug addiction, I weaned myself off of all the medications they had me on, uh, including oxycodone, oxycontin, amitriptyline, tramadol, trazodone, and massive doses of neurotin or gabapentin which was supposed to be a safer, non-addictive alternative pain medication. But that one actually ended up being the most difficult for me to get off of. Uh, and again, against the advice of all the pain management clinic and the doctors, they wanted me to just stay on all that stuff. And, and I went against their advice and slowly weaned myself off it, which was miserable. I continued to do PT and little by little, I got back a lot of my physical abilities. And after two years, I could max out the Navy's physical fitness test again. And I was crushing it. And I felt good again. And uh, the Commodore, where I was uh, stationed through my recovery at the Strike Fighter Wing on Oceana, he saw me and he, he just couldn't believe that I was doing this. Again. I was literally running circles around the majority of the command at Command PT. Uh, and so before I knew it, I got an I got a, a date to class back up for retraining in the F-18. And uh, I went back through retraining, and I had an immense amount of support from the instructors there. Like They were ecstatic to see me come back from that. And, and the strike fighter community really welcomed me with open arms. And I had been back flying. Uh, I, did a, I did the refresher training syllabus in the F-18. went really well and uh, ended up graduating at the top of my class and, and uh, getting the top stick award granted i had you know already done it so it was kind of like cheating but <laughs> but you had also been smashed to pieces to be yeah fair, so <laughs> uh, but i was i was stoked to be back i ended up getting stationed with vfa 136 the nighthawks out of uh nas lamore in california is that previously the the pooping cats <laughs> <laughs> they were the nighthawks uh so not nearly as controversial of a name but uh uh, still flying F-18 Echoes, Super Hornets again. And uh, it's, it started off good. I, I felt solid and, uh, you know, I was back. 
And we were out on a detachment at uh, what's called Inwesip, which is a weapons exercise down in Tyndall Air Force Base run by the Air Force. And I got to go out and do a, a live fire exercise with an AIM-9 Mike Sidewinder heat-seeking missile. And uh, went out, shot the missile at a drone. And uh, after I, I did that, I, I joined up with an F-22 Raptor. There were some guys there from the Hawaiian Raptor Squadron uh, based out of Oahu, which is probably got to be the, the best flying gig ever, flying Raptors out of Oahu. Uh, anyways, uh, after I did the missile shoot, I got to join up with the Raptor, another uh, junior officer, you know, so two young guys in their 20s out flying fighter jets uh, with each other was pretty rad. And I remember, you know, seeing that aircraft maneuver and, 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 you know, it's got directional thrust on it and it just moves like a spaceship. Um, Came back from the flight and I was watching my tapes for the missile shoot portion and I realized I didn't remember a majority of what happened with the missile shoot. I remember the fighting the Raptor, but I was pretty concerned with not being able to remember so much of firing a real missile. (laughs) Uh... So I went back that night to the hotel and I was having trouble sleeping and and I didn't really feel that great. Um, The next day, fortunately, I was just on duty. So I was running the radios and coordinating the flight schedule. And the further the day went on, I just got feeling worse and worse and worse and just kind of toughed it out. Went back to the hotel that night, could not sleep. Uh, I, I sat down on the end of the bed and it felt like the room was tumbling around me. I got really bad vertigo and I started just feeling extremely anxious. And in the back of my mind, I thought this could be decompression sickness. There was, uh, for a long while, we had some issues with the pressurization system on the Hornets and Super Hornets malfunctioning. Uh, and it would cause rapid rapid cabin fluctuations. Uh, The pressure would rapidly fluctuate. And if you're a scuba diver, you're familiar with decompression sickness. When you come back up from the depths of the ocean too quickly, the nitrogen in your blood can can basically come out of solution and cause these little bubbles. And if you get it in your joints, type 1 DCS, it's very painful. But if you get those little bubbles forming in your brain, that's called type 2 decompression sickness. And it can give you all sorts of mental impairments. It can be like having an aneurysm. It can even kill you. Um So that was the first thing that came to mind. Maybe I have decompression sickness. So I contacted the squadron safety officer, Squeezer, and very quickly they got me to Mayport Dive Base, which was about 20 minutes from where we were staying. Uh, They put me in a hyperbaric chamber overnight at the dive center there. Um, And I felt a little bit better the next day, but I was certainly still out of it. And uh, the, the, the wise doc there said, hey, you know, Maybe this was decompression sickness, but considering your medical history, we really need you to go in and see medical when you get back to Lemoore, which was the last thing I wanted to have to do after going through the process of getting all these medical waivers and, and all the, the fighting and battle and struggle I had to get back in the jet. But I, I didn't want to injure somebody, and I knew something was seriously wrong. Um, I continued to have a real trouble concentrating. My memory was... a was not working the way it normally did. Uh, And I started to have really bad insomnia, which was leading to paranoia and hypervigilance where I was just constantly on guard. And uh, I started to feel like I was maybe in the Truman show where everybody was watching me and recording me. And this wasn't real life and everybody was actors. Um, Anyways, that led me to go see the psychology department. 
And before I knew it, I had to go see a psychiatrist. And they largely focused on the psychological component of it. Retrospectively, I was having very, uh, very obvious symptoms of traumatic brain injury. I was going to say, I mean, you, the, the force that you hit at, that would be a pretty you know, giant red flag as well. So it was either, you know, this, the residual effects of an unresolved brain injury from the ejection or because of the brain injury that causes from DCS, from getting those bubbles in your brain can cause essentially a TBI or maybe a combination of those. It's, it's unclear for sure which, but, um, you know, hindsight being 2020, I can, I can, I'm not judging the medical staff that worked on me or the psychiatrist, but the approach they took was largely pharmaceutical based and, and focused on my behavior. And the fact that my behavior had changed and that I was getting depressed and that I was having these problems with insomnia and, and mood issues. And anyways, before I knew it, they had me on a bunch of prescription drugs again, uh, including uh, eventually it progressed to the point they put me on one called Seroquel or Quetiapine, which is a, a, an antipsychotic medication that can be used in low dosage to, uh, to help with insomnia. And it did help with the insomnia initial, initially, you know, it would knock me out, made me just feel very drained all the time, though. Well, you also, you're not sleeping, you're unconscious. Yeah. Very different. I was not getting restful sleep. And, and meanwhile, the underlying brain injury was being, un, it was unresolved. And, and it was actually exacerbating the brain injury. And little by little, uh, it got to the point where I was going in and out of psychoses. Um, I was fully disconnected from reality. One minute I thought I was a superhero or a secret agent, or in the next minute I thought I was in the depths of hell. I mean, it got really weird. Um, fortunately, I eventually uh, made it through a medical board, which uh, was a nightmare in itself. Uh, it's it, it took almost two years to go through the medical board process. And uh, the whole way through, you kind of get treated like uh, your injuries are fake uh, and that you're lying about it. And, uh, it's, I kind of jokingly call it, it's like the, uh, the bureaucratic version of the temple of doom, you know, it's riddled with these booby traps to, to, to derail you from the process and, and, and kick you out of the military without any benefit. Um, but fortunately with the support of my command and the medical staff, my wife, uh, I eventually got through that. Uh, I actually had to go appeal my case down in Washington, DC, stand in front of these three military members uh, and explain my case firsthand because the whole thing had gotten screwed up to where they weren't going to give me any medical retirement. But uh, fortunately, I, I one of the guys on the board saw what had happened and he, you know, kind of cut off the other two guys that were debating, you know, if blah, 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 are you just trying to get out so you can go fly for the airlines? Like they didn't even, they hadn't even read my case. They hadn't looked at my records or anything. They so just you deliberately like nosedive into the ocean just so you could one day. Yeah. Be yeah. Right. Exactly. That was my dream <laughs> <laughs> to yeah, go drive a school bus. Planned. We know your game. <laughs> uh, but fortunately one of the guys there, he was a, a Marine Colonel and he stood up or a Lieutenant Colonel. Maybe he stood up and he's like, listen, you, you experienced devastating injuries. You served your country. And now your country's going to take care of you. Thank you for your service. And they uh, they gave me a medical retirement out of the military. But a lot of guys get in that situation. They don't get that. And now they're homeless living under a bridge 
in Washington, D.C. or wherever. And feeling betrayed by the very tribe they're a part of. And unfortunately, it's extremely common with guys with very legitimate injuries and guys that did a lot more than I did in the military. War heroes with multiple Purple Hearts, decorated heroes that are now homeless, struggling, drug-addicted, thrown out on the streets, losing the medical care, addicted to all sorts of crap, and their result is they typically get street drugs and, and crushes their life, suicide. I was fortunate to again get that lifeline. I moved back to northern Michigan with my wife, uh, and at this point I had a newborn son. Um, I struggled very badly with suicide. Um, one night, uh, you know, I felt my life had just collapsed and that I was a failure, and I kept a, a Glock 19 in my, my end table of my by the bed, and I got the Glock out, and I was wondering what the barrel was going to taste like in my mouth, feel like on my teeth, what the, the gun oil was going to taste like in my mouth. And uh, I looked over and I saw my little boy and my wife sleeping beside me. And the only thing that kept me from putting the pistol in my mouth is I didn't want them to wake up. And I put the pistol back away and I went to bed. Um, not long after that, uh, I had continued my treatment with quetiapine through the VA hospital, and the psychiatrist had just continued to up my dose, and I had gone from 50 milligrams a night to 300 milligrams a night eventually, and then at this point, he recommended I try 450 milligrams per night. And when I upped my dose to 450 milligrams per night, within a few days, my wife uh, heard me rustling around. She came in to find me. Uh, I had, for some reason, shaved off my hair in chunks with uh, some clippers. I had shaved off my eyebrows. I had shaved off what facial hair I had at that point. And I had nothing. I was completely naked except I had a plastic black uh, garbage bag tied around my neck like a cape. And I thought I was going to go out into the northern Michigan cold, snowy weather and fight crime like a superhero. <laughs> Stop beating up raccoons. Uh, so my <laughs> wife... Uh, you know, she called the VA. The VA said, hey, we're hanging up and we're calling the police. There's going to be an, uh, a squad car arriving there soon. And the, the police car showed up, this sort of dazed and confused looking uh, law enforcement officer got out of the vehicle. And my wife's like, there's no way in hell you're going to put my, my husband in the back of a police car in his current state. And so she loaded up uh, our little boy um, and... My mom was fortunately visiting at that point, and so she came with us. As we were getting ready, my, my wife was an ER nurse, so she kind of knew how this was going to go. She's and she said, uh, "Before you go, uh, and I, you know, I'm pretty out of it, really out of it. I mean, I, I was moments ago, I thought I was a superhero, uh, but she got me dressed in clothes uh, that were acceptable, uh, <laughs> and she told me to take the shoelaces out of my shoes because they were going to take them anyways." And as she was getting ready and scrambling to put together a bag, my little boy had come out to me where I was taking the shoelaces off. And for some reason, I had tied one of the shoelaces into a noose and I had put it around my son's neck. And when my wife came out, I had this noose around my little boy's neck. And, and in my mind, I was trying to show her that I was just, I would never hurt our son. But as a mother seeing that, I mean, I can't imagine how concerning that would be. Anyway, she compartmentalized that, loaded me into the car, and on our way to the hospital, which was about an hour drive, um, I had intense hallucinations that a nuclear explosion had gone off behind us. 
as I looked into the rearview mirror, I saw this mushroom cloud. There were, you know, trees and vehicles and and animals flying through the sky from the blast. Uh, it was stormy and it was a wild ride to the hospital, all in my imagination, you know. But they got me to the hospital. As I got out, um, I decided it was a good idea to pee in one of the bushes in the lobby. And the security guard came out and saw me peeing in this bush and was not so impressed. Uh, he was about to take me to jail. Unfortunately, uh, my wife and my mom talked him down and explained the situation. He was kind of like, well, I've seen worse and, and, and almost proceeded to arrest me. But fortunately, with the tenacity of my wife and my mom standing up for me, got me into the ER and admitted. Um, I then spent two nights in the ER and had an out-of-body experience uh, from the intense hallucination I was in. I had left my body and I had traveled through time and space and 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 just had a wild experience while in there. Uh, my mom came in to visit me. And she said, I was sitting in the chair with the remote control for the little TV in the room. And the TV was on nothing but just static, just going. And I had the remote. And as I clicked it, I looked over her with my with like an eerie grin. And I was speaking in this very fast paced staccato speech, which I almost didn't even sound like the same person. But I just kept saying, do you see that? Do you see that? Do you see that? Do you see that? And in my mind, as I clicked the remote, I was able to go either forward in time or back in time. So as I clicked back, I could see back to the age of the dinosaurs. And as I clicked forward, I went into this apocalyptic world where Jeff Bezos had basically taken over the world. Everybody was addicted to his stuff. There was garbage everywhere. And everybody was completely out of their minds from pharmaceutical drugs and the and the uh, the toxic environment that we had created. Anyways, it was... Uh, in my mind, it was wild, but again, for my mom to see it from the outside, her once thriving son was now completely out of his mind. Um, once semi-stable, they put me into an ambulance and they drove me down to Battle Creek, Michigan, where I spent uh, a while living in a VA inpatient psych facility, which was uh, an absolute nightmare in itself. Um, you're, you're largely treated like a prisoner there. You're the primary tool there is more pharmaceutical drugs. Again, the food was abysmal, no nutritional value. Uh, you're constantly sleep deprived because they wake you up every 15 minutes with a flashlight in your face to make sure you're okay. Um, and the combination of being confined, harassed throughout the night, the, the mandatory drugs lack of nutrition. Uh, you're lucky to go outside maybe once or twice a week into a concrete yard between the buildings that's surrounded by fences and concrete walls. Um, you know, if, if you took a an elite military member and, and you can find them in those situation, like if they had gone to Sears school or something, it was almost like the the same conditions that you would provide if you had an enemy combatant that you were trying to break. Well, that's, that's how you create more mental illness, sleep deprivation, oh, yeah. loss of autonomy, you know, it, poor it nutrition. Was, it was everything that you could do to exacerbate mental health seemed to be going on there. And the only remedy was pharmaceutical drugs. It was all to drive you into taking more of these drugs. And I was very frustrated to the point that uh, I planned an escape when they wouldn't let me out. 
um, I pulled the fire, uh, the, the fire alarm one night to try to think, and they would take us outside, but apparently somebody had already tried that trick. And because I had tried to do that, they, um, forced me with an injection of Haldol, which is, uh, basically to supposedly help you come out of a psychotic state. But what I experienced on the Haldol was it felt like there were insects underneath my skin trying to crawl through my skin and rip off. All I wanted to do was rip my skin off. Uh, it made me extremely restless. It was like no matter what I did, all I wanted to do was run up and down the hallways and scream. Um, and that in itself was, you know, felt like torture. Um, eventually, they had me in this just drug-induced state where I was just drooling on myself. Um, despite being voluntarily admitted, they ended up committing me because of the condition I had gotten into. Um, while I was basically drooling on myself, this soulless lawyer came into the room and she had me sign this paperwork, uh, that ended up making me considered legally, uh, mentally defective. Uh, I spent a while longer in there before my family eventually got me out you know, my mom's a physician. My dad worked in medical world. My my wife was an ER trauma nurse. And with their support and advocacy, they said, hey, we'll take him home and we'll take care of him. He doesn't need to be here. And they really fought them on doing that, but they eventually got me out and back home where I spent time uh, with my son outside, eating good food, getting some exercise. And it took about six more months for me to start to come out of that psychosis. Um, but when I had come out, I realized that I had been declared mentally, legally defective, which meant uh, anytime I get pulled over, I am uh, basically on the the law enforcement network, the lean network uh, that shows that uh, essentially like I had committed a felony. Uh, I can't legally purchase firearms anymore. Uh so I went as an American veteran to try to get mental health and instead uh, had all that happen and had my constitutional rights to bear arms stripped from me. Um, anyways, I spent years after that struggling with mental health. Uh, and again, the answer was always uh, more drugs. And I continued to get very sick of that approach. And, and I had gotten to the point where I could barely read. I could barely do the dishes. Um all of my emotions were cut off and all I was was just this empty shell. And I had found myself, you know, yelling at my little boy over nothing. And I was, I was miserable to be around. And, and we were basically on the verge of being divorced. And then I struggled my way through a few books on health, including uh, I read Rich Roll's book, uh, Finding Ultra where he went from, you know, struggling with alcohol in the corporate world and, and, and obese and, and out of shape, but through a plant-based diet was able to get back into shape and do these ultra marathons. Uh, I had read Michael Pollan's um, In Defense of Food and realized how broken our food system is. Um, I largely went plant-based. I was also a hunter, so I, I eat a lot of venison from uh, from deer in the area. But that change, a big change in my diet, getting rid of all the crap, started to help. And then I read Michael Pollan's uh, How to Change Your Mind. Uh, and again, these books I struggled through because I could, you know, I could only do about a paragraph at a time. Uh, but I got through them eventually, and that led me to uh, contact Vet Solutions. 
Yeah. And, and I reached out to them and I, I, you know, I told them my story in their program, you know, that their, their situation is kind of like Schindler's list. You know, they're trying to help as many people as they can, but they only have so many resources and not being of the special operations community. I didn't have two combat deployments. Uh, they weren't able to take me into their program, but they put me in contact with, uh, warrior angel foundation, which is run by, um, Andrew and Adam Marr, uh, Andrew is a former Green Beret that went through some very similar struggles. And his brother, Adam, is a former Army attack helicopter pilot. And uh, they, working with Dr. Mark Gordon, uh, helped to get veterans on uh, a nutraceutical protocol to help regenerate brains that have been damaged through TBI more holistically. And they were doing an event called the 4x4x48 Challenge, which was based off of David Goggins, uh, run four miles every four hours for 48 hours straight. Uh, I saw that they were doing a fundraiser. So I put together a fundraiser page uh, telling a little bit about my story and my struggles. And uh, it ended up very quickly raising a bunch of money for their, their cause. And before I knew it, Adam had called me up on the phone and said, hey, you want to come down to Texas? We'll fly you down for the event. And, and, you know, at this point, uh, I, I had, uh, I had done one psilocybin retreat that, uh, that had allowed me to correlate, uh, the, the trend of these increasing medications causing worse and worse problems. Uh, and it, you know, to use Michael Pollan's sort of analogy that he uses in how to change your mind, it was like this, this fresh snowfall over these ruts of negative emotions that I had been trapped in. And I was able to take new paths in my behavior and my, in my, in my day-to-day life. Um, but again, that, that led me to getting in touch with them uh, at Warrior Angel Foundation, getting invited down. And at this point, my VA psychiatrist is very against the, the route I'm going. He, you know, he, he really wants me to take the drugs. Well, obviously, I mean, it's worked so far. It's so well up to this point. Why not? Yeah, right. It's working great. <laughs> you know, even my family was very skeptical of, of me trying to get off the medications. But I, in my heart, I knew this had to be the option. And so I got down to the, the event in Texas and was doing these four mile legs and, and on each leg I was with another incredible veteran. It was largely uh you know, Marcus and Amber were down or yeah, Marcus and Amber were both down there doing that. Uh so I met Marcus and Amber and I met all these largely with special forces community guys, Green Berets, SEALs, um, Marsoc Marines, uh there were some guys that were, you know, they couldn't talk about what their job was, but you could tell they did some pretty high level stuff in the military. Uh, and on each of these legs, I, I talked to different guys and we all had this very common theme, which was we had these struggles with brain injury and we had been put on these psych, psych meds and had been made way worse. But it was like this, this flame of hope that it gave me that I was on the right path. And it was finally, you know, at that, at that event, I saw that okay, there's this whole world of alternative modalities out there. They're just not accessible, especially through the VA. But uh, I left that event with this newfound spark of hope. Uh, I started doing a bunch of podcasts and sharing my story, and I was welcomed into this community uh, of nonprofit organizations, largely veteran-run, that uh, are picking up the slack for the massive gaps that are in our mental health uh, 
system, especially through the VA. And I started to get real treatment. Um, you know, I, I, I was invited to be part of a peyote ceremony with a Native American group. Uh, I left that experience with a newfound sense of purpose in life to share my message and, and, and help give other people this little spark of hope that I got when I heard that there was a different way ahead. You don't have to be a drug addicted, empty soul the rest of your life. You don't have to feel like you want to kill yourself every day. Um, and uh, through this past year and a half now, uh, you know, I've done a number of different podcasts. Uh, I was invited by uh, Heroic Hearts Project. Uh, Jesse Gould, who runs that, was at the Warrior Angel Foundation event in March uh, that I had attended. And he invited me down to Peru. And I got to go down there and do an ayahuasca ceremony, which uh, was largely healing of my soul and and, and very eye-opening. And, and again healed me in ways that just could not be healed in other ways. So I've, I've had a lot of success with these um, psychedelic medications. And uh, Defenders of Freedom, run by Donna Cranston, invited me to Dallas, Texas this past summer, and I did a two-week uh, TBI clinic there uh, and, and did a bunch of these modalities that were very simple, really. I mean, uh, balancing and, and these uh, supplement protocols. They do a very extensive blood panel and they really find out at a physiological level where you're off so that they can address hormone imbalances, which are very common with brain injury. Um, and after two weeks, I had drastic improvements in my cognitive functioning and, uh, and was exposed to all of these modalities that are out there that had they implemented those when I started to have my struggles, I would I would still be flying F-18s for the Navy. So this is not only, this would be a huge benefit if, if we could get the military and the VA to implement these, these, these modalities. But, uh, you know, talking to a lot of people in this community, I've learned that the pharmaceutical industry has a huge interest in making a lot of these things unavailable. Which uh, we were talking about this this morning, the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. And here we are in a profit-based system right. where pharmaceuticals are, you know, forcing meds that don't even work on communities, including yours. Absolutely. And, and it, yeah, it's everybody. It's, it's the whole mental health system. And, and it's, they're a business. They want to do their, their primary responsibility is to their shareholders and to make profit. And unfortunately, the ethical things that are going on are crushing beneficial treatments either through purchasing those modalities and disappearing them threatening the people that are producing those uh, or using their sway at the fda to make a lot of these modalities illegal for no good reason but they can do those things they have that power well even cbd which i've advocated for for the longest time the guy that um dr smith gregory smith um we had one of his products was thc free so the first responder, you know, anyone who drug tests right. for, for their career, like, look, this is third party tested. You can get this. It was easily accessible online. They shut down that. So now you cannot buy it online. You have to, you can call them and still order it through the phone number, but they've made it impossible to just do a simple online order for something that's, that's hemp. You know, yeah. it's, 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 it's a plan. Uh, it's absurd. It really is. And even while I was at that brain clinic, uh, they, they used a, um, a very beneficial peptide that that was helping people 
recover from physical injuries. And while I was there, the pharmacy said they could no longer uh, write prescriptions for it because it had been made illegal. Uh, again, you know, the pharmaceutical sway at the FDA is very powerful. The Oxycontin is still legal. Yep. Yeah, we'll give <laughs> you all that stuff you want. Even though we know how much <laughs> corruption was behind that. Oh, yeah. Uh, even even gabapentin, the, that nerve pain medication that I was on, uh, the pharmaceutical industry had to pay a huge fine because they illegally marketed that product for off-label usage uh, and, and these claims that it was less harmful. Um which were simply true, untrue, completely untrue. And, and they're able to manipulate pharmaceutical studies. These, these studies are done with these double-blind placebo tests, and they create a massive amount of data, but the way it works in reality is they get to, they get to selectively do these data analyses. And then the data analysis that the pharmaceutical funds, that's what gets submitted for peer review. So the peer reviewer, you know, we have this gold standard of a peer-reviewed article in a medical journal. That whole system has been corrupted. Uh, there's a great book called Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Fix It. Um, that goes into detail on a lot of that. And, and that whole process has been corrupted. Uh, and it's led to a lot of the things we're seeing now with these medications that are out there that are doing a lot more harm than good. And, um, anyways, I've been very fortunate to get on a new path with the support of all these veteran nonprofits. And actually the reason I joined the seven X project a, a couple days late is, uh, an organization called no fallen heroes, which is run by, uh, Matthew Wiz Buckley, a former, uh, Navy F-18 pilot himself invited me down to Costa Rica, uh, with some other, uh, military pilots and we did a, a week-long uh, Iboga retreat in Costa Rica. And Iboga is uh, a root out of a tree uh, from Africa that's used by the Bwiti for uh, spiritual purposes and rites of passages. It's, uh, it's the most intense psychedelic. It's actually what they make Ibogaine out of. Um, but when you take the actual Iboga root, which we were literally taking spoonfuls of what looked like wood chips because it is wood chips that you're eating of this root. Uh, it has a variety of alkaloids in it. It's about 60% Ibogaine and a variety of these other alkaloids that are the psychoactive chemicals that affect your change in your nervous system. And uh, I had an incredible experience on it. It was very challenging. I mean, very, I was very physically sick the first night of ceremony. Um, I was puking, purging in every way possible from shaking to sweating, to crying, to laughing, to things coming out both ends. Uh, but it was incredibly powerful. I worked with, uh, Troy who, who was one of the guides there and he's actually a, a psychotherapist and he, worked with me through everything from childhood traumas through my traumas in the military and, and care after. And through it, we were able to get out of my system all of these repressed emotions that I had been holding on to. Um, and I came out the other side of that and it felt like there was just so much evil that had just been purged from my body. Uh, all the stuff that had been trapped in my heart all these negative emotions that I had been holding down that were result, you know, you can't just cut off the bad stuff. When you cut off the bad stuff, you also cut out 
all your good emotions and it makes you this sort of shell of yourself. Um, and then the second night I, I took the aboga and I had, you know, a couple hours of just fun hallucinations and, and traveling through space and, and these, and kind of a good time. I didn't feel sick at all that night. It was like whatever sickness had gotten out of me and then I fell asleep. And so that medication worked in my, that medicine worked in my subconscious as I slept. And I woke up the next morning and I was just in the state of gratitude, peace, and love. And I felt so connected to the world again. And um, there's no doubt that these uh, plant technologies are, are one of the most powerful tools for healing on so many levels from the emotional, uh, the, the emotional side of it, the trauma, um, and almost the spiritual side of it as well. You know, reconnecting you to whatever you want to call that, however you want to explain it. There is, there is a connection between all of us. And when you get cut off from that, you end up very alone and it's very debilitating. And our current medical system with no regard from that aspect is, is almost soul draining and cuts you off and it puts you, it isolates you into a very dark place that very frequently leads to suicide. And I spent a long time in that dark place and I am so grateful to be reconnected. And, and, you know, there's, we have five senses that can detect a little bit about what's going on around us, but there's so much more going on around us that we cannot perceive or really even explain in human language or with the logic and our abilities. But there's so much more going on. And I caught a glimpse of that through these medications. And, and now I can feel it. I can feel the results of it. Um, but I, I came and joined the 7X project now with you guys, coming out of just that amazing experience into this other amazing experience to raise awareness for veteran suicide prevention. Um, and over the past week, we've traveled continent to continent and uh, everything from skydiving uh, to running marathons and, and just doing awesome things with this incredible group of humans uh, uh, like yourself, you know, to, to, to spread awareness of this and, and help give other people hope that are lost uh, in this time of kind of darkness, I feel, in our society. Um but it's been incredible. I mean, uh, showed up in Dubai, uh, to join you guys. I only got to run a 10 mile or there. Uh, and then Egypt got to go into the pyramids, skydived over the pyramids, which out, is out of what out of a freaking Russian helicopter. I think it's a, what are they called? The M one seventeen. I think it is. Yeah. Uh, very cool. Uh, jumping out of the helicopter really gives you a cool sensation with the skydiving. Uh, and then to be gliding down over the great pyramids below you and the Sphinx and all that. I mean, that was unreal. And I keep pinching myself, you know, uh, <laughs> like I can't believe this just happened. Uh, I ran a marathon once, uh, we got to London. Uh, I found out about this trip like two weeks ahead of the time. Um, <laughs> uh, my buddies over at uh, Jet HQ, my buddy Vinny, who actually took me in during my recovery, uh, works with Jet HQ, the, Garrett and Rebecca, who joined us on this trip. Um, they did a fundraiser for me, telling a little bit about my story to, to fundraise to fill one of these VIP slots. Uh, and they were able to raise a hundred grand in like two weeks to put me in one of the VIP slots. So that was 
that was awesome that it raised money for this cause. And then I got to join in on the adventure. But, uh, anyways, like two weeks out, I found out about this. So I didn't really train at all and just started running, uh, ran, I, I ran pretty much the whole marathon other than a few times I slowed down with a few walks, but I, I, I knocked out the marathon in London. Uh, and then the next day we ended up in Columbia and, uh, because some of us didn't have our COVID vaccine cards, 11 of us got held up in detention, uh, in the airport. And we got put into this windowless white room for the day. You literally weren't, weren't allowed into the country while we all went in and did the yeah. stuff that we did. <laughs> but I mean, you know, at the time it was, it was kind of disappointing, but we made the best of it in there. Uh, you know, we had pretty good spirits going on, uh, and they were able to get treadmills in there. So two of the athletes that are doing the seven, the full seven marathons on each place, uh, George and Alex each ran a full marathon in detention in, the, in oh, Columbia. These, these weren't exactly, uh, I mean, all, all they had was the budget to find the treadmill from somewhere. So these were pretty like oh, they home, were home gym. Real janky. <laughs> I mean, they were the smallest things and, and I was, we were all surprised that they held, they held up for a full marathon, but they knocked out a full marathon while we were there. Uh, and after 20 hours in detention, uh, you know, not eating the greatest food, laying on a tile floor for the most part, uh, they released us. And luckily, we were able to join back in with the trip. If initially, they said we were going to be stuck in there until Sunday, which would have been five days in that room, having to ask permission to be escorted to the bathroom. You know, it would have been pretty awful. But uh, joined back up. And then uh, yesterday, we had our final day here in Dallas and and went out and ran another marathon which was probably a bad idea on my part <laughs> i ran the first half marathon and then largely walked the second half of it but uh got it done and man uh, i i think i was the straggler of the group i was the last guy coming through the finish line but there was a huge gang of support when i got back so i was incredibly grateful that everybody waited up for me to to welcome me back and uh yeah it's been it's been an awesome journey man it's been an adventure and uh, so grateful to be here. And I, I hope this, this mission really helps, helps people out there that, that find out about it. And I know that the money that's being raised through this is going to help a lot of nonprofit organizations. And, and hopefully the documentary comes together telling this incredible story and, and helps to continue to raise some of that awareness and, and support. Well, firstly, I mean, it was amazing watching you, cross that finish line because i didn't know much about your story i heard someone on the bus from the airport to dallas talking about the ejection i know ryan told me about someone you know close to when we left um so then when i retroactively saw you crossing the finish line we were kind of ran with you at the very i mean like what 100 meters at the end yeah yeah um you know now when i hear about the extent of your injuries and your mental health journey it just you know magnifies the achievement of of that that marathon so, I mean, firstly, it's an honor, honor having you here, but I want to, I want to pull a couple of things from, from yeah, your journey. Absolutely. Firstly, um, one of the, the, the issues that I see and I've saw it within myself years and years ago is when we talk about suicide, there's kind of like two camps now, I think people that understand crisis and, you know, mental health. And then probably a majority of the people that are still think suicide is selfish and cowardly and all these things. 
through all these stories that I've heard and you, you know, the number of people that told a story that have been, you know, similar to yours now, not to the extent of uh, the other side, but certainly the, the kind of suicide ideation element. Um, a lot of them that I didn't realize part of the, the, the thought process was they felt like they were a burden to the world, to their family. And so when you take someone who is in a profession where they would risk their lives for a stranger, whether it's fire, military, etc., and then the brain is so miswired by trauma, you know, um, medication, sleep deprivation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. At that point, what I'm seeing now is the brain has tricked that person into feeling like removing themselves from the world is what their family wants. Life would be better for everyone else if I'm not here. You're lying next to your son and your wife, holding a pistol. I don't want to load the question, but was there an element of that? Um, toxic self-talk going on at that point yeah i mean at, at that point i i was so depressed and so lost i mean i was losing everything i had worked for you know i had spent my whole professional life working to be this fighter pilot and i felt like a massive failure and a disappointment to to the f-18 community that i wasn't able to continue on you know, and I just kept running through my mind, you know, that they'd put all this money and their faith in me and got me back flying. And then here I am letting them all down because I'm struggling with this silly, in my mind, it's just like, why am I like this? This is my fault. I, you know, now I know it, you're with brain injury. You're from what I've learned from, you know, Dr. My, Mark Gordon and Dr. Michael Lewis that I worked with and and the folks at these brain clinics at uh, Resiliency Brain Health, uh, you know, all these guys have kind of showed me that when your brain gets injured, it gets rewired and it, and it can put you in this very negative loop. I mean, you're, when your hormone levels get all jacked up, which is extremely common, um, it puts you in this dark place. And, and then on top of that, you have all these running loops in your head of how you screwed up or, or whatever bad had happened that you you feel guilt or shame or depression and you just get trapped in it and you can't escape it and you start to feel like well one i'm so miserable i want to be out of my misery and two i am this massive failure and and for my wife i felt like one we have a newborn little boy that she's having to take care of and now she has to take care of me a full-grown adult who one minute wants to hide and cower in the corner because I think a government assassin is going to shoot me through the window. Uh, and the next minute, I, I think I'm a, a secret agent who's going to go out and try to save the world. Or, you know, I at one point, I, I didn't want to eat or drink any water because I thought I was being poisoned. But I, I felt like a burden for sure that she was having to deal with and that the military was having to deal with. And, and that's simply not the case, you know, but it's the way that you get to feel because of the, the physiology in your brain when your brain is jacked up from brain injury and trauma in it. It's just the result of it, unfortunately, but you don't have to feel like that. There, there, there are ways to get out of it and, and for anybody out there that's listening that is feeling like they're losing that hope, you know, if you can hold on, there's there's a way you can get out of it. You can get back to yourself. Not only can you get back to where you were, you can get back 
and be more than you were. Well, with that as well, I think that's one thing that almost we're doing completely wrong. Like we're doing the opposite of what we should do. When people get in crisis and people that don't understand what we just discussed, they say, think about your, your family. You know, yeah, think about that. And the problem is if you're in crisis and your brain is rewired to where you're at that point, think about saying think about your family is almost pushing them further towards the suicide attempt well i am i'm thinking about removing myself from my family because it's gonna and you know and obviously a healthy brian just can't understand that right. i had a conversation with with people yesterday but we've got to understand you know it's like if you broke your femur and then we're going to start hopping contests i mean like why, why don't you join me in the hopping contest it's easy just come hop with me well your leg is completely different to my leg at that moment right. it's the same with the brain so i really feel like a lot of the suicide awareness posters, one of the things that needs to be said is if you are feeling like a burden to the world, there's your sign. That's to pick up the phone. What do we say? You know, reach out to me. I'm right here. Here's my phone number. Well, yeah, but you're, that's a whole different message. If you are feeling like a burden, if you're starting to believe the lies that your broken brain is telling you, that is a huge red flag then. And if the same with your friends, if people around you are seeing that, saying think of your family actually isn't the right because, of course, you're a selfless human being. If you thought it was detrimental to your family, you wouldn't be thinking about suicide. But you believe that it's actually going to be a positive impact on your family at that moment in the, 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 the mist that you find yourself in. Yeah, there's, it's, it's, very, it's very easy to feel that you're a burden. And it's very difficult to want to connect. Even to close friends, you know, I didn't want to reach out. Because I, I felt like such a failure. I was like, nobody's going to want to talk to me. Nobody, nobody wants to deal with me. I'm this, you know, I'm this piece of crap. And that's just where I was at. And it couldn't have been more untrue. And as soon as I did start reaching out and reconnecting, I realized the incredible, incredible amount of love and support. You know, just from starting that first fundraiser page that I did with Warrior Angel Foundation, you know, I start. I sent it to a few people. I didn't have any social media at that time, but I just text messaged the fundraiser page that I wrote up to a few people that were close. And I was expecting maybe, you know, to be like, oh, thanks for sharing. And, and I wouldn't hear anything. I was so, you know, out of it. But it lit on fire and it went viral. And I got so much love and support. But one of the hardest things to do is to reach out when you're in that place and say, help, please help me. You don't want to. You're like, I mean, I'm let, I think it's a pretty common mentality for guys in, in jobs like yours and mine that we don't want to have to ask for help. We want to be able to just do it ourselves and deal with it. But with this mental health stuff and suicide, you can't, you can't just do it by yourself. You need to reconnect. And if you can reconnect to whoever that may be, if you can ask for help, there are so many people out there that want to help you be it your friends, be it your family. And if not that, there's all of these nonprofit organizations that are just, they're, they're growing like crazy because there's people like me that get to experience the love and transformation from getting some of the benefits from these and they go on to create their own nonprofits or do something to help. And, and I think a very common theme of people like myself that have gotten this flame reignited in us is is we want to be of service again and we want to help and give people hope however we can. And, and, but yeah, taking that first step when you're in that dark place and feeling alone and like a burden to the world, 
know that you are not. There's so much love and support out there. And reconnecting is the way to bring you out of it. And those connections are what are going to help save you, you know. Well, it sounds to me as well from your story, it's it's inspiring to hear how much your community stuck with you, especially earlier on, you know, and, and that, that tribalism. And one of the things I think that people struggle with, whether it's organizational betrayal, which it sounds like your organization actually, you know, stood with you for a long, long time, is people find us themselves out of the tribe. And I'm sure you probably felt like that when you were in the psychiatric ward. So talk to me about the power of that tribe staying with you and then the kind of um, the, the perspective you had when you found yourself out of that tribe on your mental health. So, yeah, that was a, one of the most devastating things of leaving the military is, is you've built this close bond with people going through all sorts of crazy stuff. You know, a lot of the days you're, you're doing all these death defying things and it really brings you together and you build this brotherhood. So when you get removed from that, I mean, it's a huge loss and it leaves this void that can be easily filled with harmful substances and, and, and just can put you on a bad path. But if you're able to reach out and, and keep in touch with those people, um, and then, you know, like for example, this group, you get that back and you get that camaraderie back and it's it's always there um and you just got to reach out though um i don't know if that answers your question uh i got a little no 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 it does (laughs) well it's funny i actually did a, a speech two nights ago in cartagena the whole point of this is to replicate a lot of our you know up tempo service if you like high up tempo service whether it's the grenfell fire in london or you know the vegas shooting or deployment in afghanistan um and i think we've really created this kind of microcosm this petri dish of what a responder or a military member would endure during a profession during a career and i had an aha moment that morning so i wanted to talk about this as you said we're we're a tribe again now. This, you know, 10 days or, or shorter for you, we've come together. And as you said, at the finish line of the, the, the race, your marathon, everyone was there in, in the cold waiting for each runner to come because there are people. Tomorrow, we're all getting on planes and we're all going our separate ways again. So it was kind of like a kind of almost like a warning, like, hey, you're going to be outside again. We're still a tribe. We're a new tribe now. And we're going to we're going to have some amazing things in the future but you're going to find yourself back at home having just shared a, a plane with people for days and days and days, circumnavigated the globe. So realizing that, you know, uh, you said staying engaged with the tribes that you have. And then also, if you don't have the tribes, you just transition out of the military, find a running club or a CrossFit gym or jiu-jitsu school or a chess club or whatever it is and, and find those, those other people. You, you left one. But you can have other tribes. Just don't find yourself, you know, sitting in a lonely hotel room with a bottle of Jack Daniels. Yeah, for sure. I mean, getting reconnected to people, you know, and it can be awesome. And if whatever you're into, if you like to surf, uh, Operation Surf, One More Wave, there's there's all these organizations out there that can take you out and get you an experience and reconnect you. And yeah, like you said, join a gym, get into jujitsu, get into whatever you're interested in, find something that's an active, healthy, uh, experience, uh, or whatever you're into 
and, and just reconnect. That is, that's probably the most powerful medicine out there. Absolutely. I want to get to one more topic and then go on the positive side, the resilient side, but just another area that I think needs to be spoken about. And you touched on it in, in the story that you told. I don't think there's enough recognition of the human experience prior to putting on the uniform. So we don't really talk about what we brought in, you know, when we stood on the drill ground. Through some of these psychedelic experiences, you talked about processing trauma, including childhood trauma. What were some of the aha moments that you had about that that was the foundation that you was, you know, somewhat fragile before you ever even entered the uh, the Navy? So one of the big ones was I had uh, quite a bit of anger. Uh, I was I was a bit of a runt growing up. Uh, I got picked up, picked on, and beat up until I learned how to fight for myself. But uh, a lot of that, my way of dealing with anger was I just kind of stuffed that rage deep down inside of me. Now, a positive of that is I largely used that rage as fuel to propel me to be pretty successful and to get through some pretty advanced training and, and you know reach sort of the the higher levels of military fighter aviation was in part because of that fuel that I had been burning inside my core. So I'm in a way I'm grateful for that. But now that I've been able to, to let go of those, that rage and get it out of me and rediscovered the sort of love and connection and gratefulness, uh, that's an even more powerful fuel and it's way more sustainable. <laughs> you know, rage is like nitroglycerin. It's hard on the engine. It works, but it takes a toll on you. And uh, anyways, yeah, that, that was that was a big lesson that I learned just on this past Iboga journey, for sure. Well, speaking of that then, so you, you mentioned about trying quite a few psychedelics and I had a, another friend of mine that did a, a spectrum as well. The aboga seemed to be a real kind of breakthrough thing. One of the other, I think the, the wrong way that we're messaging mental health is almost like, or PTSD is like, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm to the point now where I can deal with it. Well, I disagree with that messaging. I think if you can process trauma, same with physical trauma, understand where the, you know, the, the trauma was, the weakness, however you want to describe it, process it, work around it, I think that becomes a superpower then. I think that, you know, that, that's what really resilience is. You go through bad shit, you process that bad shit, and now you have those scars as a kind of emotional steps. With all these journeys that you've been through, you were in a psychiatric facility, you were, you know, all these traumatic things that you told about, Talk to me about the growth and, and the mindset and where you are now. And, you know, was there was there a point where that trauma has now become an asset to you? It absolutely has. I mean, it uh, it has been an ultimate character development and it's beautiful. I mean, looking back at it, it's like I am grateful for all of that because it's made me who I am now. It has made me more than I would have been without it. But I mean, the process for me with my first, when I, I first was able to find a, a guide to do a psilocybin journey with, uh, you know, at that point I was very broken, you know, and, and struggling on so many levels and near divorce. And I was a miserable human being. And, and that energy was being rubbed off on my family. And my little boy just saw this angry guy that was his dad 
Um, and I went into that. I came out of it with, you know, this new spark of hope a little bit and, and a, a new way ahead. And some of that anger and, and had been, like I said, sort of the snowfall had filled those ruts up a little bit and it put me on a new path. And, and then to get invited and do the peyote ceremony with the natives, that reconnected me to something. I mean, after the ceremony, I went and I put my head on a tree uh, that the natives had advised us to do. And as I put my head on this tree, I saw a white flash hit my body. And, and, and what we were supposed to do was to sort of give that tree our intentions of, of what, what we were and where we wanted to go. And, and I had thought about those. But as I put my head against the tree, there was this instant connection with whatever that force was. And I was reinvigorated with the sense of purpose that I had lost. And so that kind of continued and, and then got me confident enough to start doing podcasts and speaking publicly about what had happened to me and sharing. And that led to the ayahuasca, which um, was incredibly healing in itself. It, uh, you know, it really, to put it, in short, I, I experienced what God is or whatever you want to call that, that there is a lot more going on around us than we can perceive. And, and it gives you a glimpse into that world of, of the things that we cannot perceive and understand typically, um, and a new sense of hope. And, and, and again, there were some things I got out through that, some darkness that was in me that I think I was able to release through the experience there. And, and also built a, a, a strong connection with all the other veterans that were on that. You know, I think the in between our three sessions of ayahuasca there, we, all the veterans that were there, we all hung out and we told stories and we reconnected and we, you know, the camaraderie, like we're getting on this trip, you know, we we're laughing and telling goofy stories and dirty stories and just all the stuff that you kind of miss. And, and so that was a huge part of it as well. And then, um, another psilocybin ceremony this past uh, September and I got deeper and, and, and more healing from that. Um, and then leading into this just recent Iboga where I really ridded some things that were trapped in there and, and was fortunate to work with this incredibly talented gentleman, Troy, that was able to, I mean, you know, you can go into therapy and you can talk about things, but you, there's a lot of these repressed emotions and memories that you can't access. And, and the psychedelics are a tool to access memories and things that have happened to you in your life that you can't maybe access otherwise. But not only did I access them, I relive these things through firsthand experience while I was in these journeys. And by reliving it, addressing it, seeing what had happened, like the, they call it the truth uh, because you really see the truth of what happens and you're able to forgive yourself, forgive others, uh, and to let go of a lot. And you, you purge it physically, either through shivering, sweating, crying, laughing, shitting, puking. Uh, you purge that physically. And, the, and for me, it felt like there was this, so much of the stuff trapped in my heart and through that experience, I was able to let it go, to forgive, forgive myself, forgive others. And 
And out of that, I've, I also saw the connection of, of how everything happened and how beautiful it is in a way. And that, that was sort of like my, my destiny to get me to he- be here in the position that I'm in now to share and help with others, other people and help to raise other people out of wherever they're trapped. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for the traumas and, and is despite, you know, some of the stuff being pretty horrible I had to go through, it's been an incredible adventure and, and I wouldn't be who I am now here speaking to you had I not had all that stuff happen. So it's uh it's truly beautiful uh coming out of coming out of all of it and and you but you got to hold on and you got to have some hope and you got to reconnect well i think it's stories like this that give people hope though. and this is what i love about these conversations it's funny when you were talking about the iboga i mean i've had you know obviously the the ibogaine the um you know, as you said, the ayahuasca, the MDMA-led therapy, ketamine, there's all these different kind of tools in the toolbox that most people don't know about. And to use a firefighter analogy, it would be like having one room where the door was locked in a building. And so you're lobbing water all over the fire and you, you're kind of keeping it under control. But those psychedelics would be like an axe and a halligan, a forcible entry tool that allows you to open that door that's actually the seat of the fire. And once you can get in there, now you can address the nucleus of your trauma and then the fire finally will go out. Absolutely. You really get, you get to the core of the whole problem and it, and you can fix it, but you got to get there and it's an incredible tool to getting to that place. No doubt. Absolutely. Well, just one more question. I want to make sure everyone knows where to find you, but what is next? Well, uh, I just finished writing a book. Uh, I'm in the process of getting that published, so hopefully uh, before too long, you guys will start seeing that available. Um, I've been doing a a lot of podcasts. Uh, I've been hired to do some motivational speaking over this past summer, Um, so I'm going to continue doing motivational speaking, uh, hopefully getting this book out there. Um, You know, I'm a father of two beautiful little children. Um, I'm working on rebuilding my relationship with my wife, you know, it's taken a massive toll on her and has been a traumatic experience for her. And so, um, trying to, trying to heal the damage that's been done there and, um, yeah, finding a new path to help others. You know, I feel that's my purpose now is, and I don't know the exact way it's going to go, but it seems to just be kind of flowing, uh, to me, opportunities like this with you, uh, to reach an audience and, and, and maybe inspire hope, even if this just reaches one person who's at that point where they just need that spark. Um, I really hope I can continue to do that. Just give sparks some to people that need it. <laughs> it's needed. It's needed. Absolutely. What, what's sure. the book going to be called? Well, I've, I've had a number of names, but uh, the one that I, I kind of like the most is just Scrappy Motherfucker. <laughs> we'll see what the publishing company thinks about that. You know, there's the the subtle art of not giving a fuck. So there's been some pretty big books coming out lately with uh, with controversial titles. But um, yeah, that's that's the one I'm leaning for at the moment. But uh, but I'll keep you updated <laughs> once uh, once it once it finally comes out and gets edited and and through that whole process. Beautiful. One more question: the uh, barfing dog. You think it was actually on iboga the whole time? 
<laughs> the puking dog. <laughs> it might he might have been purging. Yeah, yeah, he was getting the evil out. <laughs> All right. Well, then uh, we will definitely share the book when when it's when it's ready. Um, for people that want to learn more about you, reach out to you. Where are the best places online? Yeah, you can. Uh, I recently created an Instagram page after a long time of not being uh, on social media, uh, but it's uh, at Kagan Smurf Gill. And that's spelled K-E-G-A-N, Smurf just like the Smurf, and Gill like a fish. Uh, you can also get a hold of me through um, uh, LinkedIn. I'm on there, just Kagan Gill. Um, but those are probably the easiest ways to get a hold of me. Uh, and I'm happy to, you know, if, if you're a genuine human, uh, has questions on ways to get some healing and gain access to some of these things or, or just want to talk about what you're going through, uh, please reach out on there, DM me, uh, send me a message and, and I, and I'd love to speak with you. Did that shark ever find you in the end? No, luckily, <laughs> luckily Mary Lee was, uh, not into me. And I, I, you know, at the time I thought sharks loved human blood, but it, uh, I've since learned that typically sharks, when they smell human blood are actually pretty turned off by it. You know, we're not their We're not their first choice in meal. Not saying a shark that just swam across the open ocean for days and days, isn't going to maybe eat their second favorite meal choice. But, uh, luckily Mary Lee must've had some good fish in her or something. So like she was smoking camels in a trailer somewhere anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so just quickly on the nutrition point of view, you had a few times where, and I've talked about this on the show, you know, we're, we're in a facility where we're trying to heal people, but there's machines and lights and, you know, blood pressure checks every 10, 10 minutes. And then nutrition is terrible. So what, were you what were people bringing into you because you, you obviously you had a, had a, a healing element from the food what was the kind of food philosophy that you brought to that healing back then just uh whole foods you know real foods uh be it fruits vegetables healthy uh meats preferably if you can get wild game uh that's ideal um I'm not a fan of the industrial meat process. This is pretty unethical and, and there's a lot of tortured animals and it's pretty shitty, not only for the animals, but also for you. If you're eating a, a sick animal, I mean, I just saw a video of this industrial pig farm and they're literally taking garbage and dumping it into the machine that produces the pelleted food. And I think it's mixed with corn or some other cheap substance. And the pigs are eating all these plastics mix in with their food. I mean, it's got diapers in it and plastic bags and you can see all the different colors of plastic. When that goes into the pig, that goes into their fat and then you eat that fat and all that crap and the phthalates that are in that plastic become part of you. So not only is that bad for you, it's bad for the animals. It's bad for a lot of things. I mean, but really just eating whole foods. Uh, the more local you can get them, if you can go to a farmer's market and get your produce, you're getting a lot more from that than something that's been industrially produced and covered in Roundup and GMO uh, and transported across the world for two weeks. Uh, it loses a massive amount of its... Uh... But just little steps. I mean, drink clean water. Uh, you're probably going to want some sort of water filtration for most places. Uh, there's a lot of garbage in the water if you're drinking a city tap. But you can get reverse osmosis units that you can put under your sink, fairly inexpensive. Uh, so 
just kind of taking the crap out of your diet. Get rid of, if, if you pick up a, a loaf of bread and you read the ingredients and it's got 30 ingredients in it, that's not food. Um, try to get things that are, you know, five to seven ingredients on the in the nutritional label. And if there's something on it that you can't pronounce, you probably shouldn't eat it. If it's got numbers in it and colors, uh, don't eat that. Uh, Really, if you're going to the grocery store, just try to stay on the perimeter of the grocery store. Stick to, to stick to the produce. Uh, organic, if you can afford it, is going to do you more good with the micronutrients that are in the soil. It's going to give you a lot more than if you eat something that's been doused in Roundup, which is, uh, for the history lesson of it, is uh, was originally a tank cleaner. And uh, the reason they found that it was an effective pesticide, herbicide, was because it killed all the grass surrounding the tank. So they, they marketed it as this, <laughs> as this safer, you know, pesticide, which maybe compared to the pesticides they were using and herbicides they were using back then, uh, DDT and all that arsenic, maybe it was slightly better, but there's no doubt that that stuff kills the soil and, and it in kills turn, people I'm kills sure you behind all yeah. the cancers that we see. Oh, no doubt. Uh, you know, you need this healthy, thriving gut microbiome. You need, you need all of these bacteria. Your body is made of a lot of that stuff. And if you kill it with chlorinated water and Roundup that's in your food and plastics that's in your animals you're eating, uh, you're killing yourself. Mm. Well, even the, I mean, when you talk about the industrialized meat market, you know, the I think they said something like I may have got this wrong, but three quarters of the nation's antibiotics are actually used in meat farming because these animals are so sick they're just trying to keep them alive long enough to get them to that size so again you think about stress and all the hormones that are in stressed meat and then you add you know hormones and antibiotics and all those things that's going into your children it's going into your family so then those are probably affecting your gut biome and you know then we have all these gi issues and cancers and autoimmune diseases and all these things which, you know, there's a lot of people profiting off all that. And it's this big system that loves you to be sick. So, you know, you want to be a rebel. You want to fight the system. Freaking go to the farmer's market. Eat better. Buy less crap. Vote with your dollar. Um, eat clean. And, and that's the foundation of health, you know. And a lot of this we can do ourselves. But it's not easy. You can't just take a pill and get better. You got to... You got to put in the time. You got to get some exercise. If that means go for a 10 minute walk outside, do it. You know, you don't have to be an elite athlete. You don't have to run ultra marathon, but start somewhere. Start with maybe introducing some vegetables and fruits to your diet. Maybe get rid of some of the stuff that's got a bunch of weird ingredients you can't pronounce. Maybe start drinking more clean water instead of a soda or, uh, you know, drink a little less alcohol, you know. Just take some little steps and, and, and over time, that's really going to be what fixes you. Make some connections. And, and a lot of this, you don't, you don't have to have a fancy retreat to Mexico or, or Costa Rica. And it, a lot of it you can just do on your own just by little lifestyle changes. And, and, and that's the foundation of it all is what your, what your habits are, what you put in your body, who you surround yourself with. And the more of that toxicity you can get rid of, the healthier you're going to be, the healthier you are, the healthier world we're going to have. The more healthy, conscious people are going to be doing better things in the world. And, you know, we have 8 billion, 
apex predators on the world right now. And if the majority of them are just feeding the system of wealth and greed and, and toxicity, it's going to make the world a pretty bad place. But if you can make the change yourself to change what your habits are, to change your lifestyle, that's what's going to change the world for the better. You know, we can't, we can't change the top down. Uh, largely from from these massive systems that are corrupted but but we can change ourselves and that's how we're going to change the world for the better you know we get get ourselves healthy i agree 100 percent. and it's, it's funny because i was just listening to you when i talk about the pharmaceutical industry you know i'm, I'm trying and be very careful to point out look it's not all and you're the perfect example. Trauma medicine saved your life. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I am very grateful for Western medicine. I'm grateful to have the Dilaudid and the oxycodone when I'm in severe pain. And, and there's a place for that stuff. But it's it's not there to treat chronic conditions. It's not the way to live a life. They're a tool, but unfortunately that tool's being overused. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, there's definitely a place for that stuff. And, and I don't think... I don't think most of the people in the pharmaceutical industry are evil people at all. I think I think a lot of them are out trying to help, but and, and some of their products do, no doubt. But there there needs to be a balance there, <laughs> for sure. Absolutely. Well, Kagan, I want to say thank you so much. We've been chatting for told you it wasn't going to be ninety minutes, just over two hours now. So hey, yeah, um, cool. But it's it's amazing, and it's these are the these are the stories, and I know it's like a double edged sword. Every time someone revisits some of this, you know, it's going to peel back you know, the scar a little bit. So I want to acknowledge that. But I know that people listening will be empowered because so many of us were raised in this environment, especially I would argue men, for, for what I'm about to say, we were taught, you know, suck it up, rub some dirt in it, don't be a pussy. And I have some of the, you know, these most elite performers on here that have been to these dark places. And yours is extremely dark. I mean, some of the things that you, you've described, but it gives hope. When you hear a these you know elite war fighters go through the same exact thing as many many other people, but more importantly, that there is a way out. Now that tool books may maybe EMDR or you know equine therapy or it may be ketamine or or ibogaine so or uh, iboga. So it's it's been an incredible journey, and I just want to thank you for your courageous storytelling today. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure.